welcome everybody to the Kona Shame Veterinary Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Andy Rourke. Guys, I'm here with my dear friend, Tasha McNerney. She is the original anesthesia nerd. Boy, this is a great conversation. Get ready to jot down some notes. I don't care how much experience you have with surgery and anesthesia. You are going to get some pearls today because Tasha is laying them down thick. Um, this, is, this is a great conversation about uh, going to anesthesia when we have a pet with a full belly. And it's going to happen. It's just, you know, uh, pets don't always plan to have surgery later in the day. Uh, when they decide whether or not they're going to eat. And so this is a thing that we have to deal with. But God, I, I took so much away from this conversation. It's a great one. Gang, let's get into it. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome to the podcast, Tasha McNerney. How are you, my friend? I'm good. Thanks for having me again. Always. I love having you on here. I just, I enjoy, I just, to be honest, you and I have been talking for like an hour, uh, and I just, we finally had to press record and, yeah. uh, and do this episode. But I, you are a joy. For those of you who are watching on YouTube, um, it's Halloween, just, just so you know. That's why. Uh, that's, why that's why I am dressed like this. <laughs> yes. Uh, and for those of you who are not watching on YouTube, uh, Tasha is dressed as, do you want to tell them what you're dressed as? Yes. So for all of the Swifties out there, if you've ever seen the Shake It Off music video, uh, I am the cheerleader section, uh, the cheerleader Taylor Swift. So shout out to all the Swifties out there. Um, not going to lie, I am a reputation girly, way more than a 1989 girly. I know that's controversial. Um, oh, wow. But the reputation costume that I really would want to have, like, I, I need some serious time to work on that. So maybe next year. Okay. Well, a reputation-based we'll... costume. Okay. Well, I mean, Taylor has a, a deep catalog. I think we can just just year after year. We just we keep going. Just keep going. All right. Oh, I love this. Uh, for those for those who don't know you, uh, you are Tasha McNerney. You are a CVPP, which is a certified veterinary pain practitioner. Uh, you are a VTS veterinary technician, especially in anesthesia. You are the founder of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds, which was originally a Facebook group, mm -hmm. still a Facebook group. However, you have moved way beyond that. You guys have, uh, you've had a conference for a number of years. I have heard wonderful things about it. It is, um, it is all, it is all about anesthesia. It has a heavy emphasis on vet techs, which I love, but it's open to everybody. You guys are doing your next one in San Diego in April. Is that correct? April That's 2024? Yes, we're cool. doing April 2024 and we're bringing back, you know, we've taken a hiatus over the last couple of years with just everything going on and moving and jobs and, you know, et cetera. And now we are back and we are, we have some fantastic speakers, not only Darcy and Steven, just wonderful in their own right, but also mm -hmm. two great anesthesiologists, Kristen Messenger and Mike Barletta are going to be speaking with us as well. We're going to get really in-depth, really high-level anesthesia, new concepts, deep dives into drug pharmacology. But my favorite thing that we do at the conference is the hands-on lab going over head-to-toe regional anesthesia, ultrasound-guided blocks, different nerve blocks, and local anesthetic techniques. So I love that. I I love how you do this. I, you, I, I just, I think the future of learning is this type of really hands-on deep dive when you get together and just really do it. It's not, it's not sitting in a lecture and looking at slides. It's, it's, 
it's doing the cadaver labs and really doing the skills like i anyway i, I love how you guys roll also i lo love love san diego it's a wonderful place to be you guys are at the hyatt which is right on the water and absolutely gorgeous it's just anyway for anybody who's looking at uh looking around and going man that sounds amazing. Uh, registration is open. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Registration is open. Yeah, I can yeah. send you the link and we can put it up there. Registration is open. Um, the cool thing about this conference is that we have looked at the data and we know that after a certain amount of time, listen, we all just start to tune out. And sitting in a lecture hall for eight hours straight is just a lot. So a lot. our lectures are actually from 8 a.m. till 1 p.m., and then our expectation is you're going to spend the afternoon going out and exploring San Diego. We are really trying to do that like work-life balance thing uh, because we want you to actually enjoy your conference and not just see the inside of a conference room. We want you to go outside and explore some stuff. Uh, we might be even doing like a, a nerd's hike, you know, where we, we hike the beach, uh, but also, you know, talk about, I don't know, drug pharmacology as one yep. does. Totally. So if your boss is like, what will you do in the afternoons? You're like, I will talk about drug pharmacology. And mm -hmm. you will while and you we, walk sure. on the beach. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. Sounds great. Cool. I You came to my mind uh, recently because I, I saw this case and it was a, it's a big dog. Um, I can't remember exactly what time. It wasn't a Great Dane, but it was, it was, I think it was a big shepherd. It was a big shepherd because I remember the hair. I remember hair everywhere. It's definitely a lot of hair. It was a big shepherd. And uh, I saw this dog back after a neuter. And it had just blown up. And so this dog had the biggest, most awful scrotal hematoma I had ever seen, like ne necrotic skin. Like it was god awful. And I was like, okay, we've, we've got to fix this. This dog needs a scrotal ablation. And they brought him in first thing in the morning. And of course I said to them, has he had breakfast? And they were like, oh yeah, he ate everything. <laughs> and so I thought, you know what? I, we need to do, we're going to, we'll sort this out. But I want to talk to Tasha about anesthesia on a full belly. And also, I was like, Thanksgiving's coming up. I think that's a good Thanksgiving talk is anesthesia on a full belly. When I have a full belly, when the patient has a full belly, um, how does that go? So let me just pause there, and we can get into specifics if we want. We can use my, my you know, my uh, one-year-old German shepherd if we want to. But, but generally, let me just sort of open the conversation. Tasha, like, talk to me a bit about, about putting pets under anesthesia when they have a full belly because it's going to happen like ultimately like dogs don't like skip breakfast so they can get hit by a car like that's not how it works and so anyway is how can just start me a high level how how much of a concern should this be first off it is a concern we do know yep. that anytime that our patients do have stomach contents we are at increased risk for vomiting uh, but more importantly regurgitation right and that's what we really kind of worry about. We definitely don't want them vomiting. We don't want them feeling nauseous, but we don't want regurgitation under anesthesia. We know mm -hmm. that not only can that cause a problem to the mucosa of the esophagus, but also increases anytime there's stomach contents, that's going to increase our chance for a potential um, of airway, like, you know, stomach contents getting into the airway, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, you're mentioning that this patient is going under is going to go under anesthesia. So let's just say that when we talk about this from an anesthetic standpoint, the good thing is that we are going to have our airway protected because we're going to intubate this patient. 
So having an endotracheal tube in place, having a good seal on that endotracheal tube, testing it to make sure, using your capnograph to check to make sure that that seal is appropriate, right? That is going to help that if the patient does develop any kind of esophageal reflux under anesthesia, then that airway is going to be protected. So I will say that in this case, if you have a patient come in, whether they be an emergency patient or something like this where we're going to do procedure this afternoon and the patient has eaten, right, then we want to make sure that we are looking at drug choices and setting the patient up for success. There's nothing we can do to get rid of those stomach contents, right? Um, We want to make sure that we are just giving them the safest option possible. And this is why in anesthesia land, we will always advocate for full anesthesia where we can intubate the patient and have control of that airway versus heavy sedation where we might not have control of that airway. And should that patient have esophageal reflux uh, or regurgitation, I'm sorry, um, that becomes a more dangerous situation. So are you sort of saying, so let's just say I've got a... um... Say I've got a, 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 a dog or a cat comes in with some sort of a laceration, right? It's something that, that needs to be treated, things like that. And you ask the question, when, when was the last time that your pet ate? And they say, oh, very, fairly recently. You would actually factor that into, is this a heavy sedation case or is this a, a full anesthesia case? Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So, and again, that's going to influence the drugs that we choose. Now... All of our opioids that we are going to utilize, and we utilize a lot of opioids, especially if you're going to surgery with a patient, we know that our full mu opioids, things like morphine or hydromorphone, are going to cause more nausea, more vomiting, and a more regurgitation. Um, Opioids in themselves also blunt the protective airway reflexes, There are other drugs that can cause this as well, which are things like anticholinergics. So if you use atropine during your procedure um, or acepromazine or inhalant anesthetics. And I think sometimes people forget that inhalant anesthetics in themselves can cause nausea, vomiting, blunting that esophageal uh, sphincter tone. So that is something to keep in mind as well. So if you're going to be utilizing those drugs, absolutely, we should have a protected airway. And that means intubation of our patient with a good fitting seal that we can verify either with your manometer to check to make sure that your um, endotracheal tube is holding to the correct pressure or Mm -hmm. you're watching your capnograph to make sure you're getting those nice plateaus and then we're not getting any any leaking around our airway we want to make sure that that airway is protected no stomach contents or regurge can get down into that airway I have a RACE-CE webinar coming right at you very soon. Uh, It is called The Practical Guide to the Mitral Valve Patient. This is with my friend, Dr. Natalie Marks. It is on November 29th at 4 p.m. Eastern. That's 1 p.m. Pacific. It is sponsored by Siva Animal Health. Um, Guys, I've worked with Natalie many times. She's been on this podcast many times. She is absolutely great, super practical, uh, a really wonderful doctor to learn from. This is going to be packed full of pearls. Like I said, free hour, race CE, jump in and grab it. Link is in the uh, show notes. Get on it fast because this is going to pass us by real quick. Anyway, coming at you. I'd love to see you there. Let's get back into this episode. 
talk to me a little bit about uh, about the approach that some people have of, hey, this this pet's got a full stomach. We're just going to use our opioids. We're going to use morphine. We're going to use hydromorphone. They're almost certainly going to throw up. And then we'll go ahead and do our procedure. Um, you, you pointed out some things to be concerned about or at least pay attention to with our opioids. Do you hate that approach? Are you okay with that approach? Kind of, talk to me a little bit about how you feel about that. Yeah. So um, interestingly enough, my, my husband kind of who go, I should let people know my husband works in vet med. So <laughs> when I say I was talking with my husband about something similar to this, he was like, but I, you know, would want to give them hydro and med, then I know they're going to throw up all their stomach contents. Yeah. Potentially. Yes, potentially, that's true. And this is, again, where I have to say every single patient is going to be treated differently. Because if you said to me, I have a laceration repair on this bulldog, French bulldog, Boston Terrier, boxer, anything brachycephalic, yeah. again, because of their body conformation, just because of the breed, I know that they are already at a higher risk of vomiting, regurgitation under anesthesia. So... If we heavily, heavily sedate them with something like an opioid plus minus dexmedetomidine, even acepromazine, then what I worry about is if my team isn't on top of it, could they potentially be vomiting, but then not, you know, be in a position I'm talking about with their body. If they're on the side, they're vomiting, or if they vomit up and then immediately kind of fall over, we're not ready with intubation to protect their airway, there is a chance that some stomach contents could get into their airway and we are at greater risk of aspiration pneumonia. So if this is a brachycephalic breed, I will really try to avoid, avoid making them vomit before I am ready because I don't want them potentially getting anything into their airway. (laughs) Yeah, that, that, that absolutely makes sense. And as you're sort of laying this out, I was like, yeah, this is stuff of nightmares. Yeah, that 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 totally makes sense. So so you know, looking at uh, looking at brachycephalic breeds, things like that. That that's going to specifically, or that's going to that's going to increase your concern. Yes, one hundred percent. So you know, if this was a shepherd that came in, and again, every patient is an individual. So if you said to me, Tasha, I can't even get a catheter in without giving this patient some sedation, then again, what we have to look at is. What's the procedure that's about to be performed? Mm-hmm. How heavy of analgesia and sedation do I need for this patient? So if I have a shepherd that is in for a scrotal ablation, I know that they have eaten within the past couple of hours. Then we have to look at, can I get a catheter in? If I can get a catheter in, then we can give our drugs IV. And we know by giving our drugs IV, opioids IV, dexmedetomidine IV, we can lessen uh, the overall amount that we're giving, and then that will lessen the side effects. And we usually don't tend to see if we have given something like hydromorphone or buprenorphine IV, we don't tend to see the same amount of nausea, vomiting, et cetera, that we will with an IM or subcutaneous injection. So if I can get IV in, that's preferred. However, if you say to me, absolutely, this dog is going to need some sedation before we place a catheter because it's extremely fearful and reactive, then okay, let's do that. Now Mm -hmm. my drug choices might be a little different. Maybe I might choose something like buprenorphine or butorphanol as my opioid plus minus a dexmedetomidine or acepromazine, again, depending on the patient's ASA status, health status. So I might give that as an IM injection just to sedate the patient enough to do an IV catheter. 
And I know there's people out there saying, Tasha, you just said butorphanol. Butorphanol is not a potent analgesic. I worry if I give butorphanol, then can I still give an opioid? Yes, butorphanol, as far as its analgesic properties, pretty short acting. So let's say you gave that patient butorphanol as a sedative, gave because we don't want to give it morphine or hydromorphone. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be vomiting all over. So let's give it a little butorphanol, less likely to vomit. And then say the time goes by, you can always top off with IV hydromorphone or IV buprenorphine. Okay. Yes, some of the receptors are going to be taken up with the butorphanol. However, not all of them are. So layer in your other opioids once you get that IV catheter in place, right? Our other opioids like hydro are going to be fast acting. If you have fentanyl at your practice, you could consider that as well. Of the opioids, morphine is going to be the one that causes the most vomiting. And of the pyramid opioids, methadone is going to be the one that causes the least amount of vomiting. If you have access to methadone, Again, for a GI case or something, that's usually what I'm going to go towards. However, if you're at a practice that doesn't have any pure mu opioids, then you have to use what you have in the shelf. And that's when I start to look at things like butorphanol and then follow it up with longer lasting, um, kind of like higher level analgesia with buprenorphine. Okay. No, that, that totally makes sense. And the, um, yeah, I, I've got to tell you, the starting off with a buprenorphine or sort of a partial agonist and then adding in more of a, of a pure agonist, that's, that's not a tool I really have in my toolbox. I have to, uh, I have to, I have to sit with that. So uh, is, that, um, is that a fairly common procedure? Are there things that you should be concerned about? Um, do you see, I don't know, are there, are there when, you, when you start with something that's sedative and then you add an IV pure opioid on top of it, so start with buprenorphine and then add in some hydromorphone IV, I, again, I just don't have a lot of experience with that combination in my hands. Is there anything I should be looking out for or anything that I want to pay attention to? Yeah, no problem. So I'll just clarify that if I was going to do this where I needed a sedative at first, I would be using butorphanol, not necessarily buprenorphine. Okay. Uh, buprenorphine in itself of the opioids is not going to cause a lot of good sedation. So if I'm right. looking at a patient where I just need some sedation to get me through to get a catheter in place, butorphanol is where that's where you want to go. Again, if I've used butorphanol, say 45 minutes to an hour beforehand, and now I'm about to induce anesthesia and and I need some analgesia and I'm about to give hydromorphone, yes, you potentially could not see as strong effects with your hydromorphone. However, as with any anesthetic or any analgesic protocol, it's not all about the opioids. We want to make sure that we're using a multimodal protocol so that way if there are some receptors that aren't able to be taken up with the hydro and aren't the those mu receptors aren't able to be fully agonized with our hydro, well, that's okay because guess what? We're also adding in things like maybe a lidocaine CRI. We're using regional anesthesia to our fullest extent. We're adding in dexmedetomidine. Dexmedetomidine together with opioids, a really wonderful sedative analgesic combination. I think, again, if anybody's ever heard me speak, you know how much I love dexmedetomidine. And even the addition of like half a mic to one mic per keg IV dexmedetomidine is going to provide additional synergistic analgesia. So I think that if you are at all worried that maybe my hydro is not going to work as well because an hour ago I gave butorphanol, that's fine. Again, you're going to do a multimodal protocol. We're not always just going to rely on our opioids. And if we look at some of the evidence from human medicine, it really is about kind of like 
playing with and being very careful with or targeting our opioids, maybe even reducing our opioids and increasing some of these adjuncts like dexmedetomidine, lidocaine, regional blocks, etc. All right. Is there any chance you're going to see a a bounce phenomenon. So you use butorphanol, which has got a, a pretty short half-life, and, and I get my hydromorphone. Am I going to see increased effects on the hydromorphone after the butorphanol wears off, or is that not going to happen? No, not usually. Or at least we, do, we don't seem to appreciate that. Again, because huh. usually these patients are now under the effects of inhalant anesthesia. Okay, so we've talked about choosing our opioids and what that sort of looks like. Talk to me a little bit about GI protectants, things like that. Yes, excellent. Because again, if I have a patient that came in and they needed an emergency surgery, let's say they have a fracture or, you know, whatever they have, the laceration repair, they have eaten, I've, you know, chosen the most appropriate opioid, we have a catheter in. Now, another thing that's going to be important, again, because we know that these drugs that we're using, like opioids, like inhaling anesthetics, are going to blunt those reflexes and they are going to decrease the sphincter tone or esophageal sphincter tone. Then we want to make sure that we are putting GI protectants in. And this is things like pantoprazole, omeprazole, uh, metoclopramide, not only the bolus of metoclopramide, but also then a CRI of metoclopramide. So things like this, if I know that patient is going to surgery and they are going to get opioids and inhalant anesthetics, I know that they've eaten in the last four hours. I'm going to my clinician and I'm saying, okay, also before we get started with inhalant anesthesia, once we get that catheter in, you know, how do you feel about pantoprazole? How do you feel about maybe some cisapride, omeprazole? And do you want me to start a Reglan CRI? things like that. So we do have some evidence that doing these things is going to decrease the amount of esophageal um, reflux under anesthesia. Then another thing that I want people to know is if you as the anesthesia technician are with a patient and they're under anesthesia and you notice that they do have regurgitation either coming out of their mouth, coming out of their nose, etc., That's really important to note. You want to let your clinician know that because that pH of those gastric contents that are coming up, that's acidic. So we risk damaging the mucosal layer of the esophagus. So not only do we want to make sure we alert our clinician, write it down on our anesthetic record, but also it's going to be important to not only, you know, have your suction ready, but you're going to want to lavage that. Now, there was a study looking at whether or not just plain saline versus saline with diluted bicarbonate carbonate was better to reduce that pH in the mucosa. And they did find that if you're going to lavage uh, that esophagus, if you're going to lavage the esophagus, then you want to make sure that you're using saline with diluted bicarbonate in it to neutralize that pH. And then you have your suction ready because you're suctioning all of that out. Also, one thing that you want to note is, again, on your anesthetic record, we want to make sure that we know that this patient did have some regurgitation intraoperatively, because then I might want to talk to my clinician about whether or not this patient should be started on something like sucrophate once they have their swallow reflex back. Yeah. All right. That totally makes sense. Great. I feel good about this. Is there any other uh, things I need to look out for? Any uh, words of wisdom, uh, pieces of advice? Uh, no. Well, interestingly enough, uh, the patients that do have the highest amount of uh, regurgitation under anesthesia are orthopedic patients. So again, if your patient is a orthopedic fracture repair, then they actually already have a higher incidence of having that regurgitation. So be prepared with your GI protectants. Why do you think that is? 
I don't know, but it was a really interesting study. I can send you the that paper is. if you want to put it in the, the show notes. Yeah, sure. Um, but they look like they saw that orthopedic patients actually had a 25% chance, like greater uh, incidence of esophageal reflux uh, and regurgitation than the other patient populations. It's very strange. Oh, that's fascinating. Cool. So, and again, Tasha. brachycephalics. So brachycephalics already have an increased uh, risk of regurgitation under anesthesia. So make sure you are protecting their airway at all costs. Yes. I love it. Awesome. Thank you so much for talking through this with me. I, I have a page and a half of notes from a 15 minute conversation. Absolutely enjoyable. I really appreciate your time. Um, I will put links to the anesthesia nurse conference up. Tasha, where can people find you online? Yeah, we are on the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerd. So veterinarianesthesianerds.com is the website for all of our information where you can find all of us speaking. And if you really want to get involved in the chat, we're, our chat is mainly uh, going over cases uh, still as a Facebook group, but a very active Facebook group. Uh, we are looking to move off of Facebook uh, in the near future and just be located on our website but for now, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and come see us in person in San Diego. That sounds awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here. Guys, thanks for tuning in. I hope you learned something. I hope you took something away. Take care of yourselves, everybody. Bye. And that's it. That's our episode. That's what I got for you. Thanks to Tasha for being here. Guys, thanks to you for tuning in and listening. Take care of yourselves, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>